Okay, let's uh, stand and say a prayer. We'll just face the cross over there. Son of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kill them the fire thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who us instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by the gift of the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in His consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. St. Pius X, St. Isidore, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Um, there's, there's actually some more chairs up here if, if anybody wants to come closer so they can see the TV. Um, okay. So, I, uh, chairs right here. You can come here. All right, who's ready for the pop quiz? Who can write down Psalm 42 in Latin for me? Maybe the first word. I can read it in word. I can write it in Spanish. Danny, you don't count. Okay, so last week um, we saw the, the beginning of the Mass um, and the spirit with which you should attend Mass. And I think we, we got up to the, the point where the priest goes up the altar. And so today we're, we're just going to continue on with the Mass. Um, up to this point we've, we've seen that really the Mass has been focused on preparing the soul of the priest um, for the offering of the sacrifice, disposing the soul of the priest to offer the sacrifice, purifying him. So repeatedly, the prayers, the confidior, um, the Alpha Anobis, and the Oramoste prayer, all of them focus on the removal of the, of the sins from the soul of the priest so that he can offer the sacrifice. Um, so I mentioned last week that, that about this book, Know Your Mass, how it gives good diagrams to help us understand the over, overall picture of the Mass, why things are where they are in the Mass. Uh, the prayers of the Mass are not just there by random, but there is a sequence, there is a purpose for their placement. So as we move along, for the rest of the Mass of the Catechumens, which is designed to prepare you for the main part of the Mass, the Mass of the Faithful, we're going to see that there is a prayer part where we offer prayers to God, and then there's a teaching part where God speaks to us. So the rest of the Mass of Catechumens, there's a part where we work, and it's represented in this diagram by these stairs, where uh, this young man is, is himself going up the steps. He's working to go up the steps. So we're kind of climbing to God by the prayers that, that we offer to God. And then for the rest of the Mass of the Catechumens, we're listening. We're listening to what God is saying to us. We're listening to what God is saying to us through his apostles or prophets in the epistle. Um, we're listening to what our Lord himself is saying to us in the gospel. And then we're listening to what the church is saying to us in the sermon. This second part of the, of the Mass of the Catechumens is represented more like an escalator. Rather than you climbing up the steps, it's like you're on an escalator that takes you up the steps. Um, because it's God working, it's not you working. You're not offering your prayers to God, you're listening to God speaking to you. So God is doing the work of communicating uh, His teaching to you. So that's, that's the overall picture of the rest of of the Mass of the Catechumens. The, the, the prayer part is designed for us to accomplish all the four purposes of prayer. Um, God willing, we, we know from our catechism that there's, generally speaking, if you, if you take all the prayers that you say and boil them down and say, what are the reasons for which I pray? You can boil them all down to four different reasons for which you pray. Um, anyone, anybody want to give a shot at, at one of those reasons? Martin? Adoration. 
adoration. We, we pray in order to give adoration to God. We want to pay homage Thanks, to God. Thanksgiving. Um, Gerard? Contrition, what would be another word for that? More technical word. Reparation. Propitiation or reparation. We want to pay for sin. So one of the intentions that we might have to for our prayer is that by the work of doing the prayer, we make up for sin. Another another Intention, what would it be? We got adoration, we've got reparation, great petition, petition, where we want to ask for something, we want to ask God for some favor. Um, and what's the last one, Ms. Fisher? <laughs> Thanksgiving, 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 where, where we just want to thank God for His blessings for us. So, these, these are the four purposes of prayer that, that we learn in our catechism adoration, pay homage to God. Reparation, make up for sin. Petition, ask God for something. And thanksgiving, thank God for his blessings. And these four purposes of prayer are embodied in these prayers that make up um, this part of, of the Mass of the Catechumens. The Kyrie, the Gloria, and the Collex. So the Kyrie is a prayer of reparation. We, we say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And the Kyrie is, is kind of connected with the prayers of the foot of the altar, which, which are, are specifically designed to take away sin. So it makes sense that, that the Kyrie would, would be after those prayers of the foot of the altar um, because they're all designed for reparation, for that intention of reparation. Really, that the whole first part of the Mass is about reparation, making up for sin, cleansing the, the, the soul of the priest, cleansing the soul of the faithful, in preparation for the main part of the Mass. Then, of course, the Gloria. Um, the Gloria is not said at every Mass. There are certain Masses in which the Gloria is not said. The Gloria, the first words of the Gloria are taken from the words of the angels on Christmas night when they appeared to the shepherds. And they there was first, there was just one angel <clears throat> that appeared to the shepherds, and then all of a sudden there was a whole host of angels giving glory to God. Glory to God on the highest, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. I'm not like in the Charlie Brown special, <laughs> which... Because I'm of a certain age, I grew up watching. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest and um, goodwill to men. Uh, peace, goodwill to men. That, that, that's the Protestant translation of that. Peace, goodwill to men. Instead of peace to men of goodwill, which depends upon the dispositions of, of the soul. Uh, instead, it's just universal peace to everybody sort of meeting you where you are, accompanying you. Um, yes, you be you sort of thing, and it's all good. Um, so this, this Gloria accomplishes two of the purposes of prayer. It's both adoration and thanksgiving. The Gloria is adoration and thanksgiving. Um, as I mentioned, it's not said at every Mass. Because it is a, a hymn that is very joyful. You know, at the midnight masses on Christmas and Easter, because we've, we've come out of a time of penance, or at least at Easter, and the bells have been silenced. It's at the Gloria that we ring the bells for a long time um, and the, 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 to s symbolize our jubilation at the ending of the fast and the celebration of this great feast of Easter. So the, the Gloria is um, a very joyful hymn to God. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a hymn to the Blessed Trinity. And because it has that note of joy, it's not said uh, on masses that, that where you have purple vestments or where you have black vestments. 
or if you have like a ferial mass during the week. And let's say, say you've got the Sunday after Pentecost, and then later on in the week, the priest repeats that mass of the Sunday. It's a ferial day, and he's going to repeat that mass. Well, he's not going to say the Gloria. It's not, it's not the mass of a feast day, whereas all the feast days, uh, we would say the Gloria. There is one exception. If, if a priest says the votive mass of the angels during the week, so the church recommends to the priest, like if you've got a ferial day, and, and, and on a ferial day, the priest can say whatever mass he wants. So for each day, the church recommends possible ferial masses, votive masses that he can say. So Monday is the Holy Trinity, Tuesday is the angels, Wednesday is St. Joseph or Saints Peter and Paul, Thursday is the Holy Eucharist or our Lord um, Eternal High Priest, Friday is the Holy Cross, the Passion, uh, ma- votive mass of the Passion, um, and then Saturdays are always dedicated to Our Lady. But for those votive masses, uh, except for Tuesday and Saturday, you don't say the Gloria. You don't say the Gloria. The, the, um, and we do say the Gloria on Tuesdays because it's the votive mass of the angels. If we say the votive mass of the angels, we always say the Gloria because it's like their hymn. The Gloria is their hymn. Um, so this... The, the Gloria is a hymn to the Blessed Trinity, and the technical name for a hymn to the Blessed Trinity is a doxology. Doxology. And the church just kind of likes to end its hymns with a doxology. It's, it's just simply a hymn in praise of, of the Blessed Trinity. Uh, doxology is a prayer in praise of the Blessed Trinity. So the Gloria is is like an extension of the most common prayer that we pray to the Blessed Trinity. What is the most common prayer that we pray to the Blessed Trinity besides like the sign of the cross? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. So that's a doxology. And in the divine office, um, the church always has the priest in with that Gloria Patri. So it's uh, in the Mass. It was Psalm 42. It ends with the Gloria Patri. In the introit, when the, the priest is, is done saying the first part of the introit, he says the Gloria Patri. So it's like the standard conclusion to a prayer. We're going to end by praising the Blessed Trinity by a doxology. And if you look at practically all of the hymns, in the breviary, they all end that way. The last, there's, there's a bunch of stanzas. And then the last stanza is to the Blessed Trinity. Um, it's, it's a doxology. It's a, a song of praise to the Blessed Trinity. Um, we can take the example of the Tantum Ergo. The Tantum Ergo is, in fact, the end of a much longer hymn um, to uh, in praise of the of the Blessed Sacrament. So at benediction, we just take the last two verses, last two stanzas of, a, of an extended hymn. And we, we, we start with Tantum Ergo Sacramentum. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's not the Laodicean, is it? Um, I, Sacri Solemnis, um, Pange Lingua, Pange Lingua, you, you've got it. That's it. It's the Pange Lingua. So the, uh, the Tantum Ergo is the last two stanzas of the Pange Lingua, a hymn composed by St. Thomas Aquinas in praise of the Blessed Sacrament. And when you get to the end of that hymn, just as like you get to the end of pretty much all the hymns, the liturgical hymns of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he composed this hymn, he knew that when he got to the end, the last stanza had to be reserved to the Blessed Trinity. So he was, he was going to compose it that way. Um, so the, we, we say, Genitori, genitoque, laus et jubilatio, salus ono virtus quoque, sit et jubilatio. Sit et benedictio. There we go. Um, let me just write this. Genitori, genitoque. 
This is a doxology. All the hymns have to end. The hymns of the divine office have to end with his praise of the Blessed Trinity. And the Gloria that we have at the Mass is an extended doxology. It's an extended praise of the Blessed Trinity. This, this hymn is, is um, you know, I, I don't want to rate the prayers of the Mass, uh, but... This is really, really wonderful. It's a really wonderful prayer. Um, representing the dispositions of a soul who wants to adore God, pouring forth its heart of adoration to God. Glory be to God on high, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. We praise thee, we bless thee, we adore thee, we glorify thee. We give thee thanks for thy great glory. Think about that. We give thee thanks for thy great glory. We're thanking God for being God. We thank you for being you. Um, the, there's, there's such a simplicity here um, because we're, we're, we can't, we're not looking for like fancy words. We're not looking to be really complicated. It's just the simplicity of the soul saying, you are great. Lord God, Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty, Lord Jesus Christ, Only Begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, Thou who takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Thou who takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Thou who sits at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For Thou alone art holy. Thou alone, art, O Jesus Christ, art most high. With the Holy Ghost, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. So after, after the Gloria, um, the, the priest uh, kisses the altar and turns around and says, Dominus Vobiscum. Because it's one of those moments where he wants the faithful to make sure the faithful are paying attention. He's getting ready to say a prayer in which they are involved. The, the collect, the, this prayer that is um, said o- over the people. The collect is, uh, well, l- let me just let me just stop it on, on that Dominus Vobiscum uh, for a second. You know, the, the Dominus Vobiscum is, is something that the priest repeats many times during the Mass. Um, and sometimes he turns around, and sometimes the priest does not turn, turn around. Um, so this time... He turns around, and whenever, whenever the priest turns around, if he's going to turn around and say the Dominus Vobiscum, he's always going to kiss the altar before he turns around, because the altar symbolizes our Lord, and so there, there's there's multiple significations here. One thing he wants to reverence our Lord before he turns his back to the altar. He wants to pay a reverence to our Lord, but 
also, he wants to, he's going to say to the people, the Lord be with you. So before he says that, he's going to reverence our Lord and, and, and so be able to, as it were, give them our Lord. So he, he reverences our Lord and then says, the Lord be with you. Um, and the faithful say, um, and with your spirit, um, and, and also, with, not, not and also with you, that, that, was, that was the bad translation that existed in Novo Sordo for, for decades, right? And also with you, Father Bob, sort of thing. Um, so, so it's, and with your spirit, and with your spirit, Father, Father Peter Brown, um, who wrote a book in the 1700s, commenting on the Mass, and this is one of the great things, if you have a Mass that, that is centuries upon centuries old, you, you get so many holy figures explaining it over the centuries. Um, so Father, Father Peter Brown, he says, we say, and with your spirit, to indicate that what is going on here is a spiritual activity. Um, and when, when the priest is, is doing what he's doing, it's primarily a spiritual thing. So the, the, the priest goes and he prays the collect. And he prays the collect with, with his hands extended, right? Prays his collect. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a gesture you're used to the priest doing. But if you think about it, you, you, don't, you don't usually do that. I mean, you, don't, you probably don't go back home and, and do that, right? I mean, when you, when you pray, it's, it's, more, it's more like this or, or like this. Um, but this is a very ancient form of prayer, to pray with your arms, your hands extended, um, with your arms outstretched. Um, it's, it's a way of supplication. If you, if you want to beg somebody, you, you know, you're going you're gonna to get out of your hands. You're not just going to say, please. You're going to say, please, please. <laughs> Especially if you're Italian. No? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a way of, of supplicating God for, for, for the, the hands to be extended. Um, this, this manner of prayer is referenced in the New Testament, where I think St. Paul um, speaks of praying with your, with your hands outstretched. Um, so don't do that in your pew, um, please. Uh, <laughs> but that is, that is why um, it is done. These, these collects that, that appear in the Mass, they are like the central prayer for the day. The priest will have to repeat this prayer over and over throughout the day. Um, when he prays the divine office, he's, when he finishes that, the hour of divine office, he's going to repeat that collect. So um, he says it at lauds, he says it at turfs, at sext, at known, and at vespers. So he's going to say it five more times during the day. So the, the, the church carefully composes these prayers to be like the prayer of the day. The prayer of the day. And they're, they're so beautifully composed. Um, they're, in, in Latin, there's, there's a certain rhythm to them. Um, there's a certain corsus. They, they always follow um, a certain pattern. Oh, oh God, who so and so and so and so, you know, grant that this is the, the typical typical form. Grant that such and such may happen to us. With some reference to a saint, the saint of the day whose mass is being celebrated or the, the mystery that's being commemorated in the mass. The, a lot of these prayers are very ancient. We don't even know who composed the vast majority of them. They go back so far. And they... Um, they, they got rid of them. They got rid of so many of them with, with the Novus Ordo. Um, I think there's like 64% they got rid of. They just completely tossed them out. And then the remaining 36%, I think half of them, they modified. Um, they, they really represent the Catholic attitude towards sin, toward, towards our own unworthiness. Uh, they just had a lot of themes kind of odious to the composers of the new mass. It was one of the many great losses in, with, with the new mass. You know that the, the collect, there, there can be multiple collects. 
at a mass, right? Um, th th there's not always just one collect. Anybody know when when we might have multiple collects? So the priest will say two prayers, even rarely three prayers um, at that time. Penny? When you have multiple feast days going on the same day, especially when they are in different degrees, you have a first class feast and then a third class feast. So it's a commemoration. Yeah, yeah it's a commemoration. So you have a saint and you got two saints, two saints, or you you have a ferial day. Say you're in Advent and you have a ferial mass. So the, the ferials in in Advent are third class. So the priest has to say that mass. If it's a third class ferial, he has to say that ferial mass. If it's a fourth class ferial, then he can choose what mass he wants to say. <clears throat> so in Advent, it's third class ferial. He has, has to say the mass of the previous Sunday. But what if you have the Feast of the Saint falls on the same day? Like St. Francis Xavier, December the 3rd. Well, the priest is going to say the collect for the, for the Sunday after Advent. That's the Mass he's saying. Then he's also going to say the collect for the, the Feast of St. Francis Xavier. So you're going to have two collects. So this, this happens not infrequently during the year. Then... That collect represents the intention of prayer of petition. So with the, with the curie, we had reparation. The gloria, we had adoration and thanksgiving. With the collects, we have petition. We fulfilled the four purposes of prayer. And we're ready to move on to be instructed. We've, we've done our work of offering this prayer to God. And now we're going to listen to um, the words of God coming to us through various instruments. The epistle, his apostles and prophets, and the, um, the gospel, our Lord himself, the sermon, the church. Um, not going to spend much, much time on, on that. Well, let, let, me just, let me just speak about, in between the epistle and the gospel, you know you, you have various things that can happen you, you have the gradual, right, that, that appears after the epistle. Um, let, me, let me just put the different possibilities here. You can have the gradual, tract, hallelujah, um, Right. You can have you can have various combinations of these. You can have a gradual and an alleluia. You can have a gradual and a tract. You can have a double alleluia, right? Depending on the time of the year. Each of these correspond to different times of the year. So, like when would you have the gradual and alleluia between the epistle and the gospel. I know the time of year that you would that you would have that. From Pentecost until Advent? Yes, yeah, so the, the time after Pentecost. Is is that time. Um sometimes you just have a gradual by the way. Nothing else. Gradual and tract. Um, when is it? Excuse me. Lent. During Lent. During Lent. It's not every. It's not every Lenten mass that you have a gradual and tract, but but definitely Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you have the gradual and the tract. Um, double double Alleluia. When do you have the double Alleluia? Easter. 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 Why is it called a gradual and a tract? Why those terms? Well, um, the gradual is so called because it's said on the gradus. So the, the word gradus in Latin means step. Um, it's not because the priest is just like 
Deus in adjutorium meu. He just says it very gradually. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more the etymological sense of gradual that it's that is said on the step. It used to be sung on the step, and then and then the tract um, comes from a Latin word meaning continuously. So tractim, you, you say something tractim, you say it continuously. In that case, the, the, the one who is seeing the gradual would immediately go into the tract. He wouldn't stop. He'd go immediately into the tract. Um, so that's why it was called the tract. Whereas if he was saying the alleluia, they would, he would stop. There would be a stop after the gradual, and then the alleluia would start up. Yeah. So the, the church is varying what you have in between the epistle and the gospel according to the season of the year. So you, you have sort of a standard mode is the gradual and the alleluia. Um, then you have a more sorrowful mode is the gradual and the track. Then you have a very joyful mode for, for Easter, the double alleluia. They just have two alleluias. There's also... But also something called the sequence, right? The sequence. Um, you don't see it too often. You may have heard that that in 1570, when when St. Pius, Pius V codified the tradition of the TLM, uh, when he sort of set it in stone, because there's a lot of variations at the time, and he said, enough of the variations. If your variations are not 200 years old at least, then forget it. you got to say this, what I'm putting in this book, Right? Um, and he said, we've got so many sequences out there, and a lot of them are bad, like bad poetry, so we're going to pare down the sequences to just keep the best ones, and that means five. He said, <laughs> he was kind of choosy, he was kind of choosy, he's like, I think there's five out there that, that are nice, um, the rest of them, yeah, yeah, we're going to get rid of them. Um, so what, what, uh, what, what are the sequences that we have during the year? The five, five masses at which we have a sequence. The sequence would just follow after the Alleluia or whatever. Whatever there is, gradual track, a double Alleluia, whatever, the sequence will just follow. And that's what sequence means. Sequencia is just what follows on. Yeah. Anybody know any masses that have a sequence? Mass of the Dead, the Diezire, Diezire, or the Requiem. Stabat Mater, after... Um, yeah, Stabat Mater, which we heard recently, September 15th. Um, Somebody said Pentecost. The uh, Veni Sancti Spiritus. is for the Pentecost octave. So this sequence is said every day in the week of Pentecost, from Sunday to Saturday. So that's Pentecost octave. That's three. That's three out of five. Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi. Yeah. Yeah, the Lada Sion. Lada Sion. Corpus Christi. There's one left. Easter. Easter. Victime Pascali Lades. Pascali Lades. All right. So these. These sequences are the best of the best. The best of the best. These are incredible, poetic compositions that correspond to the, the feast, the mass of the day. And also the Gregorian ch chant is phenomenal. What wonderful music to go with the poetry. All right, so after... After the epistle, then we got we, we have the gospel. 
But before the priest says the gospel, because the gospel is like the solemn reading, we're hearing the words of our Lord himself. And the priest and the faithful are meant to prepare their souls for listening to the words of our Lord. There's various ways in which the church solemnizes the reading of the gospel. One is the, is the way in which the priest prepares. How does the priest prepare for, for the gospel? He, he does at a sung mass. There, the, 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 the book is incensed, right? He, he imposes incense and then he, then he incenses the book. But um, he says a prayer. He says a prayer beforehand. Cleanse my heart and my lips. Yes, the, the Munda Kor. The Munda Kor. And this is, this is one of those prayers, one of the four times during the Mass where the priest does the waist bow. And we sp- spoke about the three different types of bows last time. This is the most profound bow. Um, so at the Confidier, the Munda Kor, Tejitor, and the Supliches Table Gamus, is the four times during the Mass, the church asks the priest to bow halfway down. So he says this prayer, the Munda Kor, cleanse my heart and my lips. Um, yes, I may worthily pronounce or yeah, pronounce your holy gospel. Um, cleanse my heart and my lips as you cleanse the lips of the prophet Isaiah. Do you have it there, Martin, if you want to read it for us? So, cleanse my heart and my lips, O Almighty God, that it's cleansed with the burning coal of the lips of the prophet Isaiah, and vouchsafe in thy loving kindness so to purify me, that I may be enabled worthily to announce thy holy gospel through Christ our Lord. Okay. So, this is referring to a scene in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's the only time in Scripture that you hear talk of the seraphim, the, the greatest angels, um, the, of, of, of the nine choirs of angels, the seraphim are the highest. And Isaiah is having this vision where, where God is asking that he be a prophet. And you have these, these angels who have uh, three sets of wings, three sets of, of two wings. And um, Isaiah is saying... <clears throat> that he's a man of uncircumcised lips. How can I go to preach your word to people because I'm a man of uncircumcised lips? And so the seraphim, they, they take a burning coal and they, they put it on his, on his tongue in order to purify his, his tongue for his mission of being a prophet. So I, um, I recommend looking up that, that episode from the book of Isaiah's so the priest is asking that this same thing happen to him, that, that his mouth be purified because he's getting ready to pronounce the words of our Lord. And then, uh, then it goes on, the, the, the words go on. Um, he, you, you, you have it there, Martin? Yes, now say the Lord to bless me. The Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may worthily and becomingly announce his gospel. Yes, yes. And at the Solemnheim Mass, um, that is the prayer that is said over the deacon. At the Solemnheim Mass, it's the deacon who says these prayers. And then it's the priest who pronounces that prayer. May the Lord be in the heart and on my lips, and you may worthily and fittingly pronounce this holy gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he blesses him, and then he goes off and, and sings the, the gospel. So the, in the gospel, um, various things are done to show our respect for the gospel and the importance of the gospel. One thing is the fact that we're standing. When, when, you know, when someone important comes to the room, you stand. You stand at attention. You, you, it's a way of showing reverence to somebody. If you're standing as opposed to being sitting. We were sitting. We were sitting for the epistle, but we were standing for the gospel. Um, so you, you sit to listen to the apostles and the prophets. You sit to listen to the Father but you stand to listen to our Lord. Um, then we, in, in the sung mass, the church has the acolytes be there, the, symbolizing the, the light of the gospel. They are present there um, by the, the gospel, whereas they're not present by the epistle. We perform the ceremony where we sign our forehead, our lips, and our heart. And this is significant. The, 
the forehead is, is the place everybody can see. So you put your cross on the forehead to show that you must not be ashamed of the gospel. Um, we, we put it on our, on our lips to show that we must profess the gospel and on our hearts to, to show that it must go into us, must be imprinted upon our hearts. Um, the insensation is, is to symbolize, says Father Brown, the odor of God that is meant to enter into the hearts of the faithful. Um, the candles, a sign of the joy that the gospel gives us and indicate that Jesus Christ is the true light who illuminates us by his word. So, the church takes great care for us <clears throat> to give respect um, to the gospel above all of the other readings that we have, which for the other ones, we're just, we're either kneeling or we're sitting. Then we, we have, um, this is another way to represent, um, he's got these cute angels there, um, yeah. <laughs> So this diagram shows us that the, the different types of prayer and then uh, the different types of people who speak to us before we get to the Mass of the Faithful. And the creed is, is the last step. Uh, this, the, the priest who put together this book, um, Father Demetrius Manusos, he says the creed is like a password to get into the Mass of the Faithful. If, if you're a catechumen, uh, you don't know the creed yet, and you're told to leave at that point, that's the Misa, as we said last, last week, Misa when you're sent away. And if you know the creed, you're able to stay for the Mass of the Faithful. All right. Um, so, the, the last thing, we've just got about 15 minutes, and there's, before we, we start the Mass of the Faithful, um, I just want to talk to you about the Mass as a sacrifice, because the Mass of the Faithful is where the sacrifice of the Mass is actually accomplished. All that's gone up, up to this point is simply for us to prepare us for the offering of the sacrifice. God willing, at this point, we're now disposed for the main part of the Mass to unite ourselves with the offering of the sacrifice. But the sacrifice takes place in the Mass of the Faithful. I want to explain to you, this is, this is going to be the most difficult part of, <laughs> of, of all these lessons. So when we talk about what a sacrifice is and why the Mass is a sacrifice. So I'm just going to give you a definition of sacrifice. It's the offering of a material thing made to God alone to testify His supreme dominion and our subjection by some change in the thing being offered. Made by a and made by a lawful minister. That is the priest. So this is a definition taken from St. Thomas Aquinas. Um in his Summa. And it gives us all the elements of what a sacrifice is. So, offering of a material thing. This is what 
what a sacrifice is. It's an offering of a material thing. Um, to whom, then made to God alone, is to whom it is made. And then to testify to his supreme dominion and our subjection is why it is done. By some change in the thing being offered is how, how it is done. And then, then made by the priest is who does it. So we have all these elements that go into making a sacrifice be what it is. And all throughout human history, even before Christian times, the central act of religion was sacrifice. We all know that, that pagans did sacrifice, right? Sacrifice is not something proper to Catholicism. It was It's done by, by pagan nations. So we know that pagan nations... They would, they would take their animals or they would take humans and offer them to their false gods. And what, what we, one thing we have to understand is that sacrifice is a religious act that's for God alone. This is specific to, to sacrifice. When it says made the God alone, you, properly speaking, only make a sacrifice to God. It's an act of homage that's reserved for the deity. And what, what we have to ask ourselves is why is this the central act of religion? Why, even, even pagans, when they are sitting around and they're saying, we want to appease the gods, how do we do that? What should we do to show respect and homage to the gods to make them happy and they come up with the idea let's take an animal that's, that's precious to us or let's take a human being that is precious to us and offer it by destroying it why, why, would, they, why would they come up with that why would they think of that But why? To show how precious it is that it can't be offered to somebody else by destroying it, it's God. Okay, so so one thing is by destroying it, you're you're taking away its use for yourself. Or or others, other than the one that it's offered to. Right, right. Is there any other symbolism in in sacrifice? Question: What what do you say pagans were doing the sacrifices? Or because I mean, weren't all the Jews doing those? Or the Jews as well? The Jews were doing sacrifices. Uh, The Egyptians, the the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Greeks, everybody, the Chinese. The Aztecs, the Mayans, the Incas, they were all doing sacrifices. So in the Bible, the Jews, I mean, they're doing the sacrifices. Who were they doing them? To, to God. To God. So so I'm not saying it's bad. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that, that humankind, all throughout history, when they have wanted to pay homage to a higher power, they have chosen sacrifice as the instrument by which they pay that homage. They've said, this is the most effective way for us to pay homage to a higher power. And I'm asking the question, why? Why would they choose sacrifice as homage to a higher power? Martin says, well, what you're doing is you're taking something that's very precious to you, and you're giving it to the higher power by destroying it. You're you're taking it out of your own use. You're not allowing yourself to use it. Yes. 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 That's what we're also saying. I've got this thing that is very precious to me, but 
you are more important to me than this thing. And so in your honor, I'm going to destroy that thing. And I'm not going to be able to use it to show that you are more important to me than that thing. That's, that's definitely part of it as well. It can also be a way of, of showing that really, after all, this does not belong to me. This is not mine. I'm taking something that is my property, but in fact, it's not really my property because everything comes from you. So I'm going to give it to you. So there's those symbolisms in there. But, but what, about, what about this, our subjection, our subjection? Why would we, taking something that you possess and destroying it, show your subjection? Why do you think it would show your subjection? You see, there's many different things signified by a sacrifice. It seems like it's an act of obedience. So, you know, I don't want to destroy it, but I am because I'm more subject, because I'm obeying what you would want. But I think you, would. you gave it to me, therefore it belongs back to you. Yes. Also, the magnitude humility. Also, bringing yourself, you know, showing yourself lower. Showing. It shows that we're lower because what is it that gives us power? What is it that gives us certain dominion over others? It's the stuff that we have. It's, it's, I've got my truck. I've got my nice job. I got my bank account. I've got my Swiss gold bars, you know, I've got all these things. And because I have this wealth, I'm able to do stuff and I'm able to command people. I've got money and I'm going to buy your services and you're going to have to do this for me, right? So you take something that gives you power. This is the source of your power and you surrender it. You say, I'm giving this up to you and I'm destroying the thing that gives me power. I'm taking away my power, and this is, as I say, a way of saying, I subject myself to you. I yield my power to you, to your power. Um, so, many reasons why everybody who does religion, except for the Protestants, <laughs> 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 um, does sacrifice. It's the central act of religion. It's, it's the way, the supreme way to show homage to God. All right. So the Mass is a sacrifice. How is the Mass a sacrifice? Well, the Mass has to contain the essential elements of being a sacrifice. <clears throat> And that is where you have the offering of the thing, right? The offering. Then there has to be the change of the thing. Immolation and the consummation. By a priest. So mass have these elements of a sacrifice. The immolation immolation means killing. Consummation is, is like consuming consuming of, of the thing being offered. Do we have these? Does the transubstantiation count as a change as well? Or is that is that an exterior? It does. It does. It does. So we have the offering, obviously, in the in the offertory. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the offertory, is to make the offering. The immolation is at the consecration. Now, it's unbloody. Our Lord does not die at the Mass. But the Mass is a sacrament. The Mass is a sacrament. So there is a symbolic immolation of our Lord. 
How is there a symbolic immolation of our Lord? By the fact that there are two species of the Blessed Sacrament. You have the bread and the wine, and the bread and the wine are separate. And this separation of the two species, because you don't, you don't have this in the, other, in the other sacraments, where you have like two components to the matter. But you do in the Blessed, in the blessed Sacrament, and the, for the Mass to be valid, you have to have a consecration of both the bread and the wine. Because that double consecration signifies the separation of our Lord's body and blood. It symbolizes the separation of our Lord's body and blood. Our Lord does not actually die at Mass. He cannot die anymore. He's not killed. But because of the way sacraments work, that they are signs that cause, and that when you have the sign, you have the effect as well. So at the Mass, we just have to signify the death of our Lord to have the sacrifice. It causes the Mass to be a real sacrifice by the symbolism of the separation of his body and blood. If the priest just consecrates the bread and forgets about the wine, it's not a Mass. It's not a valid Mass because you do not have the signification of our Lord's death. So it's through the double consecration that our Lord's death is signified and that change takes place in the thing being offered. The species of bread and wine are transformed into our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity. His death is symbolized, and we have a real sacrifice. Our Lord is present on the altar. He is the priest. Our Lord is the main priest at the Mass, not me. I stand in the the place of our Lord, but our Lord actually is present on the altar. He's really there. Right? I mean, this is what we believe. We believe in the real presence. So he is actually physically there, and he's not a piece of bread. He himself is really there. He's not changed into bread. He's there under the appearances of bread. But he's substantially there. The real Christ is there. And he is performing the same acts that he performed When he was on the cross. What was he doing on the cross? He was offering himself as a victim to the Heavenly Father. He was playing the role of the priest and the victim. So at the Mass, we have the same priest that was on Calvary. We have the same victim that was on Calvary. We have the same purpose of the the crucifixion. And this is to give infinite homage to God. So unlike the, the offerings of the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the Old Testament where you had a merely human priest offering an imperfect victim, some sort of animal. At the Mass, we have the most perfect priest, the most perfect dispositions on the one offering, and we have the most perfect thing to be offered to God, which is our Lord. And so that makes the Mass the most perfect act of worship that can exist. And therefore, the, the, the most important thing that we Uh, can do on this earth, is to unite with the sacrifice. There's nothing greater that we can do than to join in this infinite homage being offered to God. Um, And then, of course, the the consummation is is the the reception of our Lord at Holy Communion. Um, And the priest is supposed to receive at least part of what he has consecrated to complete the sacrifice. So the priest has to receive from the the big host and the the wine um, to complete the sacrifice at communion. So, that's all for today. Um, Yeah, the... uh, I have one question. So, that's in the context of the Mass, the concept of sacrifice. Now, what about outside of the context of the Mass when what is just offering sacrifice to God in his everyday life? Is there a change in that type of sacrifice? Or is it, it's a very, it's a totally different nature, right? Yes, yes. It's a sacrifice in a, in a more analogical sense, um, but not sacrifice properly speaking. 
All right, let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Our Lady, help of Christians. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.